Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. From driverless cars to digital assistance, it seems the world of work is on the cusp of a technological revolution that is generating hopes and fears alike. But are the robots really knocking at the door? And what does this all mean for Aotearoa? New Zealand economist Kinley Salmon, a graduate of Cambridge and Harvard universities now working in the United States, tackles these questions in his new book, Jobs, Robots and Us. He presents his arguments that New Zealand can and should shape its own future before an on-stage conversation with Vincent Heeringer. We hope you enjoy it. Well, you've probably seen the headlines. Invasion of the robot workers. The robots are coming. Is your job safe? Almost half of all New Zealand jobs at risk of automation. Will you lose yours? And then perhaps most strikingly, rise of the machines, robots set to take over in bed. <laughs> Kia ora. It's a real honour to be here, and thank you all for coming. That's a pretty scary list of news media headlines from around New Zealand. According to these, the, the robots are invading, threatening, and taking vast swathes of our jobs. They're apparently even trying to replace us in our most intimate moments. To me, something else also stands out about these kinds of headlines. The robots seem to be doing it all on their own. Human choices and agency are strangely absent. It all sounds inevitable, regardless of what we mere humans might want. Now, the more I read about this job apocalypse, the closer to home it felt. I grew up in Nelson in the 1990s. My mother still lives there in the homely old house with peeling red paint that I was born in. And as Vincent mentioned, since growing up in Nelson, I've been extraordinarily lucky to study and work abroad in the UK and in the US. But I'm deeply attached to Nelson. It's very much home to me. And every time I come back to New Zealand, I see my friends from school, from soccer clubs, and from university. So when I read about half of New Zealand jobs being eliminated within 10 or 20 years, and the spectre of long-term unemployment, it's very difficult not to focus on the fact that this scary jobless future that's being described is both my future and the future of my friends, my schoolmates, and my siblings, indeed of every young Kiwi. To be blunt, it often sounds like we're screwed and there's nothing we can do about it. So I wrote Jobs, Robots and Us because I wanted to take a long, hard look at what the reality of the future of work in New Zealand might actually be. Would it really be that bad? And even more importantly, is there anything we can do now to make sure that the future is better than some of these dire predictions? I'd certainly hope it's at least up to us whether the robots end up in bed with us. I'm going to argue two things today in response to these questions. First, that automation and job losses are not quite as scary and definitely not as fast as we're often told. But things are going to change and that won't be easy. What we do at work is likely to change, as well as what work we do. But second and more importantly, the kind of future of work we get in New Zealand depends deeply on the choices we make to shape that future as individuals, businesses, iwi, and through our government. 
There's so much that we can do to shape the future, but it's critical that we start debating and doing that today. First, because it really won't be easy. There are big challenges ahead. And second, because there's a risk that if we don't proactively shape the future and instead just drift into it, we could end up in a world of much greater inequality, where more people struggle to find regular decent work and end up stuck at the, on the couch at home, or worse. I'm here, therefore, to talk to you about the future, but I'm also here to talk to you about the present, and in particular, what we can do today to shape the future of work in New Zealand. So to see how we can shape what happens in the future of work, we need to take a closer look at some things like the nature of technological change and innovation. Innovation, as you've probably noticed, is talked about constantly, but often in a very general way. Yet there's actually more than one type of innovation, and each type has a different kind of impact on jobs. Even more importantly, we need to remember that the technological change that we get is not like the weather. It doesn't just happen to us randomly. Instead, the type of technological innovation we get is something we can influence and control. So what are those types? Well, first, there's efficiency innovation. This helps us to make and sell established products more efficiently, for example, by using fewer workers. The warehouse did this in New Zealand, in retail, using big box stores to deliver the same products, but for lower prices. Efficiency innovation is helpful for making things cheaper, but it also tends to eliminate jobs. A second kind of innovation we have is sustaining innovation. These are innovations that are basically an upgrade of a previous product. Consider what happens when Apple brings out a new version of the iPhone. Everyone who'd been working on making, selling, or creating apps for the iPhone 7 gradually moves into doing the same thing for the iPhone 8. Sustaining innovations like this help to keep people in jobs, but they don't create many new ones. And then finally, we have market-creating innovations. These create whole new markets of people buying something that they simply didn't buy before. For this reason, market-creating innovations create new jobs rather than just replacing existing ones. The personal computer, for example, created 15.8 million net new jobs in the United States, in part because buying a personal computer wasn't a direct replacement for buying something else. It was a whole new thing. The invention of television was similar. In both cases, suddenly there were new jobs like computer scientist and television graphics designer that simply didn't exist before. The thing to remember about market-creating innovations is simple. They generate new jobs. So all of these innovations have benefits, but if we want to keep people in work over time, we need to keep a balance between them. The good news is there's lots we can do to influence this balance. One way we can influence it is through state-funded research. The internet, GPS, and fracking are just three examples of major technologies that have their roots deeply in state funding. Yet in New Zealand, the state funds plenty of efficiency innovation, such as automating grape picking or forestry work. That raises a big question that I tackle in the book. Is state-funded R&D doing enough to also generate market-creating innovations, given it's these that are most likely to generate new jobs? And then what about the private sector? Well, private sector inventors mostly want to make money. We have drugs for male baldness and erectile dysfunction, yet we don't have vaccines for malaria or HIV. Why? Because the former are more profitable than the latter. But what's profitable to invent doesn't get decided in a vacuum. 
policy matters. To take one of many examples in the book, consider climate change. The price of carbon in New Zealand is dramatically below the actual cost of carbon emissions to the world in, for example, rising sea levels and heat waves. As a result, the profit to be made from inventing carbon-saving technologies is far lower than it should be. The trouble is it often pays off better to invest in reducing the need to use a worker than it does in reducing the need to emit carbon, precisely because we don't have a realistic price on carbon. You can see this whenever you fly on an aeroplane. We have automatic check-in kiosks, and a huge chunk of the flight is flown on autopilot. Yet we've made very little progress on flying without emitting massive amounts of carbon. We often forget that for new technologies to affect us at work, these technologies actually have to make it out of the laboratory, become commercially viable, and to move into widespread use in homes and businesses across New Zealand. And again, we have a great deal of influence over whether and for what technologies, as well as for how fast that process actually happens. And if there's a lesson from the history of technological adoption, it's a simple one. It often takes a bloody long time. All the news about driverless cars, for example, can feel like it's come out of nowhere. But the first driverless car was nipping around a busy Parisian motorway back in 1994. Similarly, I was amazed to find that fully automated milking sheds for dairy cows have been commercially available since the early 1990s. Yet today, only 2% of New Zealand dairy farmers use them. Even desperately needing a new technology doesn't guarantee we can rapidly commercialize and adopt it. The first solar panel was on a roof in New York, turning the sun's rays incredibly into electricity in 1884. Yet today, 135 years later, solar is just 1.6% of global energy production. Now, you might be thinking, come on, Kinley, adoption is surely at least speeding up. Well, the think tank McKinsey Global Institute had a close look at this and concluded bluntly that there is no evidence that technological adoption has yet accelerated over the last 60 years. Strangely, the vast majority of studies that claim as much as half of our jobs are at high risk of being automated simply ignore the question of whether and how long it might take for technologies to actually be adopted. They focus only what, on what might be technically possible. This usually means that a machine somewhere in a well-resourced laboratory could do it. It does not mean that machines can do it at a cost that is competitive with alternatives, nor that people will want to use that new technology, nor that regulators will allow it, nor that the entrenched interests can be overcome. Ignoring the question of cost is perhaps the worst omission. Put differently, what these studies are really saying is that all these jobs would be at high risk if cost were no object. I don't mean to be glib, but a lot of things would be at risk if, of disappearing if cost were no object. So in Jobs, Robots and Us, I discuss the huge range of things we can do to affect the adoption of technology in New Zealand, to speed it up or slow it down, and to affect the type of technology we get. For example, studies show that the arrival of immigrants with exposure to advanced technologies help to speed up the adoption of these technologies in their new countries. Regulation also makes a big difference. The pizza chain Domino's chose New Zealand to deliver the first ever pizza by drone. It was cranberry and chicken, in case you're curious. And the reason was New Zealand had the most forward-thinking aviation regulations. 
We're now six years past the first major study that claimed that almost 50% of work was at high risk of automation within 10 or 20 years. Yet there's very little sign of it. Sometimes we forget to look in the obvious places, like at the unemployment rate. That's at its lowest in a decade in New Zealand. It's at its lowest since 1969 in the United States. And even in Brexit Britain, it's at its lowest since 1975. Not only is unemployment historically low, but more people, and in particular more women, are in the workforce than ever before, making low unemployment even more striking. Last year, Statistics New Zealand reported that there were more New Zealanders in work than ever before in our history. Still, surely we must be changing occupations constantly to, as the robots chase us from one job to another. But a study in the US found that fewer people are changing occupations today than at any point since records began in 1850. Technology and automation should also mean that productivity, how much we produce per hour, is rapidly increasing. Automation, after all, means we can produce more with fewer people. Yet productivity growth in New Zealand and across the rich world is close to its lowest level since the 1960s. Let's be clear, on each of these measures, if robots were arriving or about to arrive to take over vast swathes of work, we would expect to see the exact opposite. Now, change will come eventually. But the message here is that if we start now, we do have some time to shape the future. Moreover, as I discussed in the book, when we do see technological change in automation, the picture is more nuanced than we're often told. It's true that automation can really hurt workers. That can be extremely difficult for individuals and communities, as many towns in New Zealand know all too well. Finding a new job, retraining, or going through a period of unemployment is very painful. But it's important to recognize that there's good news too. New technologies, including automation, help make us more productive and wealthier. That means lots of products are made more cheaply, and we can therefore afford to buy more. And in buying more, we also create new jobs. Remarkably, this can even happen in the very same sector that has faced automation. When 98% of the process for weaving cloth was automated in the 1800s, employment actually grew in that sector for about another 100 years, because people bought far more clothes. We've seen the same thing recently, as automation technologies have reached retail, banking, and law firms. This effect doesn't last forever, but new technologies also create whole new jobs for humans to do. Think of things like app developer, data scientist, artificial intelligence system trainer, and offshore wind farm engineer. These kinds of new jobs are what market-creating innovation can deliver. Shifting to new jobs isn't easy, but we've done so before. In New Zealand in 1901, fully 40% of the working population worked in the primary industries, mostly in agriculture. Yet by the 1970s, far more people worked in manufacturing than in the primary industries. And by 2006, manufacturing was back down to just 12% of the workforce. The services sector had grown to take up the slack, and that's where most Kiwis work today. So, does this all mean we should just chill out about the future of work and forget about it? Absolutely not. Those major transitions we've been through in New Zealand were not easy. They caused spikes in unemployment, real difficulty for families, and often forced people to up sticks to find work. In Fokutu and the Hawke's Bay, which I write about in the book, the closure of the freezing works in 1986 led to high unemployment, 
battles with mental health problems, and social isolation. Critically, throughout our history, we've often taken proactive steps from widening our social safety nets and increasing access to education to make these transitions a little less painful and to shape the future. If we don't do something similar this time, and I would suggest even more significant, there are very real dangers. We could end up with rapidly rising inequality, a hollowing out of the middle class, and a struggle, even for insecure or unsatisfying work. There remains a big question, however, of what kind of positive future we should try to shape for New Zealand. There's a whole range of futures out there that we could aim for on a spectrum from working as much as we do today to working far less. Do we want to keep an economy with high employment and economic growth? Or might there be an alternative future in which we could work much less and perhaps be as or more satisfied with life than we are today? In Jobs, Robots and Us, I sketch out two alternative futures on the spectrum that we could aim for. Although they're slightly different, both are high technology worlds, at least 25 years from now. The big difference between them is in how much we work. I first tell the story moonlighting as a fiction author, of Paul and Nati's imagined lives in Miramar, Wellington. Despite chatting to people over holograms and living in a house wired up like NASA HQ, their world is one of high employment. People still work long hours, and jobs have grown in creative and innovative sectors, in personalized services like medicine, and in whole new sectors, thanks to new technologies. I firmly believe that even with major technological change and automation, we could still live in a New Zealand like Paul and Nati's but creating it will be hard. There are six big challenges to getting there that I see. Let me just highlight three today. And I want to focus on these because I think they're too often forgotten in discussions on the future of work. Firstly, we need to push our innovators and researchers, both public and privately funded, to focus on developing and adopting technologies that create jobs, not just eliminate them. In the terms I used earlier, we need to get the balance right between market-creating innovations and efficiency innovations. The second, and this really matters for Auckland, is that we need to physically get people to work. The trend is for higher paid, higher skilled jobs to be concentrated in cities. If we want a future in which most New Zealanders are able to work in these kinds of jobs, they have to physically get there. That means affordable housing, close enough to work, and decent public transport. The third challenge is what I call the big green elephant in the room. The hard lesson of economics and the environment is the following. Throughout history, the more stuff we have produced, the more environmental damage we have done, most notably to the climate. A New Zealand in which every worker produces more per hour thanks to advanced technologies, and in which we're all still fully employed, is going to produce dramatically more stuff. If we can't figure out how to avoid our emissions increasing with our GDP, our future could be hot, flooded, and unstable. Now, these six challenges are not insurmountable, and in the book I lay out some steps to get there, from putting a real price on carbon to an ambitious trade policy. But we aren't going to get there without real effort. Yet there is this other broad future we could aim for, one in which we work far less. I explore this in the book through the story of Rachel and Way's lives in a future Nelson. Neither of them work, but both receive a universal basic income and were given a gift portfolio of shares on their 18th birthdays funded by high taxes on the productive economy. Robots don't quite do everything. There are still psychotherapists, caregivers, and of course, politicians. But most people do not work. The trick for Rachel and Way, though, is finding meaning outside of work. 
Now, for many of the reasons I've just discussed, I don't believe that technology is going to force us into this world anytime soon. Yet if we believed that a world with far less work was what the good life really looked like, there are steps we could take to shape the future in that direction. But of course, there are also big challenges. First, we need to actually push our innovators to support much greater automation. And there are, again, things we can do here, from state investment directly in automation to throwing open our doors to big tech companies with driverless cars, drones, and robots. But even if we manage to hasten automation to take on many of the tasks we do today, without a job, people still need an income. Finding a way to redistribute income, perhaps through a universal basic income or a set of gift shares, is imperative. But historically, playing Robin Hood is far from easy. Yet work today is not just about income. It's also, at its best, a source of social connection and meaning and purpose in life. For Rachel and Way's world to succeed, we need to find other sources of meaning outside of work, perhaps through volunteering, community and civic engagement, and family life. Now, Rachel and Way's future is just an archetype. There are less radical versions of this world in which people still work less than today, three-day working weeks, for example, or retiring at 45. When I describe these futures to people, what they tend to ask me is, which is most likely? That's a reasonable question. But the real question, I suspect, is what kind of future do we want? And what are we willing to do and to trade off to get there? There are big challenges to reaching either of these broadly positive futures, and to overcome them will require effort, tough choices, and starting today. The danger is that if we don't proactively shape the future and instead drift unthinkingly into it, there is that third possible future lurking, a future of higher inequality, underemployment, insecure and intermittent work, and families unable to make ends meet. So what's my preference? I believe that some form of Paul and Nacha's world in which work continues to play a central role in our lives is what we should be aiming for. For the income it provides to us, and to the country to do the things we care about, for the social connection it brings, and for the sense of meaning, purpose, and flow that work at its best can provide. Work, of course, is deeply imperfect for many people. The urgent task ahead of us, I believe, is both to overcome the challenges to building a world of continued high employment, and to figure out a way to make work work better for more of us. Still, mine is just one perspective. My question for you all is what kind of future do you want for New Zealand? And what will you do to help us get there? Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Kinley. There was so much in there, and uh, maybe we all need a little lie down to think about that for, for a bit. But um, I do like your optimism and I'd like to counter your optimism with some alarming headlines of my own. So here we go. Workers see robot revolution depriving them of jobs. Automation might end most unskilled jobs in 10 years. A robot is after your jobs. Unemployment will end the honeymoon with robots, and so on. You could carry on with those. In fact, the White House launched a blue ribbon commission on technology, automation, and economic progress. Um, so obviously the alarm is there, but there's something about those headlines that you know that, that I don't, perhaps. Uh, yes, well, I think the notable thing about those headlines is that they're from about the 1920s to the 1960s. 
Um, so we've been here before. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a sort of sense of history repeating itself to a degree. The fact that we have been here before kind of gives a sense, a little bit of comfort, right? That, um, and it did make me think, um, and, and you mentioned in the book, which is very good, by the way, congratulations, we'll come to how he uh, started writing the book in a minute, but I, I did think about um, the Industrial Revolution, that uh, you know, even prior to the 20th century, we have been here before, we've seen disruption in the workforce and, and ways of life. Um, and so it, a fear of automation seems a bit quaint, almost, a bit Luddite, maybe. Look, I mean, I think it's understandable to be concerned. There is just so much alarming press out there. And there are these studies, but as I just mentioned now, I think the question is really, what are these studies saying? And you know, there's a great example, actually, from the past on this, that when electricity was introduced, it took 30-plus years for that to actually end up really changing how factories were operating. It required factories to be entirely re-engineered, moving around pieces, stop using drive shafts, and so on. And so, you know, I think... That gives us time to adjust, which is a reason not to be scared. Um, but it also does say, you know, obviously over time things do change. But we've been able to cope with it before, that's for sure. What, did, what, what can we learn from the Industrial Revolution? The Luddites uh, were, were legitimate in their opposition, I mean, the smashing of looms and so on. What, was it just a, a kind of a fear of change? What, what was driving that kind of reaction to technology. Yeah, a, a, a British historian called that, um, called that class negotiation by riot, <laughs> something to that effect, which is to say that what was happening in the Industrial Revolution there was that you know, actually those machines enabled lower-skilled workers to get jobs on production lines that used to be the sole preserve of, of artisans. And so you know, there is... I think that what that tells us for today is that there are distributional impacts that are going to happen here. So it's not that everyone's going to have the same experience. And I have presented a pretty positive picture, but it's important to keep in mind that, yes, some groups will do better or worse as we go through. And that's, I think, why kind of making sure that the welfare state, for example, has got a safety net in there for people that do find they get into difficulty because technology's changing the sector they work in, that they have some support. And also the education system, that if it's necessary to retrain, and of course it will be over time, that that's there in place. And I think, I'd like to think we can do a better job in New Zealand than happened in the Industrial Revolution, where ultimately, you know, there was progress, but there's a huge amount of pain in that transition. It does make sense if you are the owner of of capital, for instance, to reduce costs by replacing a, a costly worker. And you think about Uber recently listed uh, on the New York Stock Exchange. And, and one of the reasons that it was listed at a lower price was, was the cost of the drivers is the major cost there for Uber. If they could replace those drivers, that, that would be a strong in, uh, incentive, right? Because they would see a major drop in cost to their organisation. Um, what, what happens to those drivers? Is, is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the Uber case in driverless cars is a fascinating example. I mean, a couple of things I think is worth saying. One is that in the US in particular, but also in New Zealand, we tend to treat capital more favourably under our tax regime than we treat workers, which is a really... Um, you could call it effective way to favour automation over continuing to use workers, even when it may not be economically efficient. We're basically subsidising the use of machines. Mm. So in the US, payroll taxes do that very strongly. So I think one thing to say is that, well, we can also influence that. The other is that, um, I mean, in the book, you know, I'm a bit sceptical about uh, Uber's model there and really what they're 
going to be able to do. I think over time, a lot of those drivers will no longer be working there full time, but I don't see that quite as quick, happening quite as quickly. Um, and I also think that we probably overestimate how easy it will be to automate every last mile of those vehicles, um, mm -hmm. what they need to do. And so, you know, I think that drivers aren't done for yet, that's for sure, mm. uh, and much will depend on regulation. But then, yes, at some point, do we have the systems in place, the support for those people um, as those jobs do phase out? And I think that, you know, actually there's some lessons from what's happened with globalization and trade, where communities that were hard hit by exposure to trade from overseas didn't get the kind of support they needed. And I think we should make sure that we avoid falling into that same trap again as automation advances. But it's even, we've got, um, in addition to sort of the knowledge of how to manage change, whether we do it or not is another question, but we have seen, you're saying that the change is not as fast as we think it is. And I was reminded, and in fact you quote Bill Gates in the book, that we overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term, right? And is that what's happening with, for instance, the, the dairy, the auto automated dairy machines, which are av available, I, I think, um, you know, they're used in Europe, yep. um, and yet still um, dairy farmers will never let it be forgotten that they are rising at 5 a.m. <laughs> Um, to, to produce the Ponsonby lattes. Yes, yeah, yeah quite right. Um, look, uh, I think that the, the, on adoption it does take quite a long time. And the story with the automated dairy sheds is mostly about cost. They're very expensive. If you're a dairy farmer and you're thinking, well, I'd love to stop getting up at 4.30am to serve these you know, people their milk in Ponsonby, hmm. um, that's going to cost a lot of money to install. And so... You know, that's been the big hindrance here in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. uh, they've done, they've surveyed farmers and said, why haven't you used this technology? And it's, you know, cost really matters. And that's, I think, the big, as I mentioned, that's the big thing that we kind of don't include. It's, you can do a lot of things if you have a huge research budget and a laboratory to do things in, but then getting it out into public use um, is really challenging. And the other thing I'd say is that we also tend to assume that all the technologies out there that are studied in these, these articles that we've referred to, that all of them are going to be kind of as successful, as popular as the internet or the mobile phone. You know, but lots of technologies actually are okay. Some of them are a bit naff. There's a thing in Sweden called the Museum of Failure where there's a whole set of technologies that didn't make it. Mm. Um, but think about the Segway, right? I mean, the Segway, these things you ride on, the Segway technically sort of made it possible that no one need ever walk again. It technically automated walking. And yet, the segways are really just the domain of sort of overheating tourists for the most part. Yeah. It's a question of, do these technologies really make sense for people in day-to-day -day lives? Mm -hmm. And also, are they affordable? So I think that's, you know, this time and also thinking clearly about are all these things really going to come into widespread use or not is, a, is missed too often. So there's a, a kind of just because you can doesn't mean you will yeah, uh, kind exactly. of element to it. Uh, in the book, you talk about the impact of um, robots uh, in South Korea um, having the, the reverse effect of actually uh, being, there's this correlation. I'll just read this to you because um, it, uh, it's kind of interesting. South Korea has by far the most robots uh, per worker. In 2016, it had 631 industrial robots per 10,000 employees, yet labour force participation in South Korea has been steadily rising for 30 years. Or put differently, South Korea has used ever more robots, as 
Korea has used ever more robots, they have also got more people into the labour force. So it's kind of like the very opposite of, of the sphere, right? Is, is South Korea an outlier in that regard? No, South Korea is not an outlier at all, actually. Um, South Korea has got a, the most industrial robots per worker, but many other countries, Japan and others do too, and in Europe, Germany. And in all of those countries, labour force participation has continued to rise. And so it's clearly possible, at least in some countries with the right sets of policies, in fact, in most countries, to have robots used quite widely. And, and I mean, as a comparison, I think, and I may get this wrong, but I think about 24 industrial robots per 10,000 workers is a New Zealand number. So okay. we're vastly below. V versus uh, 631. So, so you know, yeah. we're probably not at the limit of, you know, I may be wrong on that 24, but it's much lower. It's factors lower. Yeah. We're not at the limit of being able to do this and keep having people into the workforce. And that's for some of the reasons I alluded to in, in my talk. You know, it makes us more productive and then we're wealthier. Mm. And when we're wealthier, so far, we've chosen to continue to consume more. And in doing so, we create jobs. Even if each job, uh, you know, to produce one latte or um, one television screen takes fewer workers than it used to, we're selling so many more of these things that workers are actually doing pretty well. In these countries that you mentioned, South Korea, Singapore, Germany, Japan, Sweden, Denmark, they are the kind of countries that generate that third level of innovation you've talked about, right? So are you saying that to not displace workers, you do need that third level of innovation? Yeah, look, I'm saying that there's sort of different effects that balance against each other, and you can get them out of balance. So on the one hand, as I just mentioned, this idea of getting wealthier, employing more workers, and also this kind of market-creating innovation that creates new jobs, that's good for keeping people employed. But on the other hand, there is this displacement, and that does happen. I mean, there are you know, sectors in which people have moved out en masse in the past. What would be an, an example? So in the 90s in the US, manufacturing declined massively as a source of employment. Uh, but also, in, you know, there are many in Korea and about... Was that robots, though, or was that kind of you know, the ever-moving factory, first going to Brazil, then to China, then to... Bangladesh or? It's a bit of both, but actually there's been some recent studies that suggest that it was quite a lot about automation and, and more efficient production in factories. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that does, um, that does happen out there quite a bit, but the question is, do you get that balancing effect enough? And I think that the risk in New Zealand is that we, we just assume that oh, this balance that has broadly happened in New Zealand's past continues to happen automatically. And sort of beyond the broadly positive message in the book is this point that if we just let it run now, that balance may no longer be there. And so we need to think about, well, are we trying to invest in innovations and adopt things that create jobs as well? Because if we just let the displacement happen and we don't think proactively about how to bring up this other side that's good for workers, things can get really out of whack. There's a kind of um, twist to this, isn't there, that perhaps what we're doing is creating effectively a, a kind of bartender and bus driver economy. You think about Uber, for instance, if there was, if it did move to driverless vehicles, you're, you're basically saying your driver's somewhere in Silicon Valley, it'll be, you know, a, a piece of AI, which really leaves uh, those high-tech jobs overseas, those high-paying, high-value, high-tech jobs are done overseas, and, and we're left to do what? To clean the streets. Sure. I mean, I think this is a really important 
piece and a big question for the future of work. And there's been quite a bit of study about this idea that the middle class is getting hollowed out. You know, that there's a few people who stay in these very high-tech jobs, working in artificial intelligence. There's a big gap where kind of most people used to work and there's, you know, we've just left with sort of lower skilled, cleaning the streets kind of jobs. Now, so overseas, you do see some evidence of this in the US in particular, but I was very struck in writing the book uh, that actually in New Zealand, you don't see that at all. What you see is that there has been, yes, some decline in the middle, but what's happened is that, not that it's grown at the lower end and that we're all cleaning the streets, it's actually that we've moved more and more New Zealanders into working in higher skilled and higher wage jobs. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really a very positive story for New Zealand. So I think that so far, you know, we should feel not too alarmed by that in a New Zealand context. But given there's been some evidence of it overseas, again, it goes back to, okay, what are we doing to create jobs mm -hmm. in that other, in that more um, skilled, more kind of high value sectors? Mm -hmm. And that, that goes back to innovation. But I think we should, should also acknowledge that it's likely in the future that things like personalized services, you know, so teaching, caregiving, medicine. Sex bots. Sex bots, possibly, but uh, I think probably not. But that these things where the, the fact there's a person there uh, is part of what we actually want. You know, we don't want to be taught by a robot. We want to have a teacher who is human to deal with us. And I think that that's, we're likely to see more and more people working in that kind of personalized service, quote unquote, sort of sector. And that those jobs can be very well paid, but we also have to make sure that we try to make them be attractive and positive careers for people, and again, not just sort of assume that it's going to work itself out. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of uh, uh, something that also comes through in the book is this idea that actually robots could, and automation could take over what's called the three Ds, the dirty, dangerous, and difficult tasks. Um, um, so I don't know, for instance, abattoirs, right, are increasingly being automated and they're, they're gruesome and difficult places and dangerous places to work. Um, does that mean that the, the corollary to that is that you've got also these sort of softer skills that you're talking about, these things that we really want humans for? Um, is, is that going to grow? Maybe even, for instance, the arts, writers, for instance. Let's hope so. <laughs> um, no, I think that's true. I think that it's... You know, there's been a couple of very interesting studies in Australia saying, look, this automation could be fantastic for us in terms of reducing workplace injuries and you know, people, you know, reducing the kind of difficult, dangerous workplaces where a lot of people still work. Um, and I think we should, you know, embrace those opportunities to improve things. But again, there's this question of, okay, well, if we're going to move people out of dangerous or dirty work, do we have something to move them into? Mm. And do we have a, a, a way to smooth that transition so that it isn't a, a jolt or a, a huge gap of income for them? Um, so, you know, I think that there's lots of positives there. I think that there's a risk, you know, that we kind of think, okay, great, less dangerous work, but what are they doing instead? You know, mm. that's, that's the key piece for New Zealand, I think. Uh, I want to put to you... Uh, uh a really frightening scenario about the future of robots that's less uh, sanguine than the one you're talking about. Um, recently, Mary Wareham was in New Zealand. She is leading uh, a, th a thing called the Campaign to Ban Killer Robots. Yes. Uh, which, you know, sounds kind of fun uh, if you're into sci-fi or something, but what she's talking about is the use of armed drones to, um, in the military. Uh, and I'll just read you a quote for uh, what she says. There are a huge number of problems with the use of armed drones, a great void of accountability and justice for the civilian victims harmed or killed, and we can only see that getting worse once you have fully autonomous weapons. 
Uh, and she references policing robots or um, even at the moment, you know, the, the use of uh, um, um, drones in Pakistan to, to blow up um, suspected terrorism cells, driven largely by people sitting in bunkers in, I don't know, somewhere in the, the in Pentagon, you think. Um, and, um, you know, funnily enough, the, the people of Pakistan are asking for a ban on armed drones. Do, do you uh, uh, perhaps don't touch on it so much in, in, in a work context, but do you have thoughts about um, whether it's even possible to ban a, a killer robot? Yeah, I mean, I, it's not what I focus on in the book, but I, I think that in a way there's more to worry about on that side and on some of the other applications of modern technologies. Um, I think that on work we've seen in the past that we can adjust if we take some of these steps that I discuss in the book. On other things, the challenge is more new. I still think that the, the right way to approach that is, you know, as is happening, to try and think, well, before this is, gets out of hand and we're doing it even more than we already are, mm. can we have some kind of global agreement about it? Can we take some proactive choice that actually decides that we as societies or as nations want to see the future to be a particular way? Mm. And that requires you know, debate. Um, and so I think you know, in a way it's the same requirement in the work context as in some of these other ones, that we, if we just let it happen, it could go in a whole lot of directions, some of which could be pretty terrible. Um, you know, so I think that that's, I'm glad to hear there is a campaign about this, because I think exactly that kind of thing that thinks carefully about new technologies and how they end up you know, influencing us or interacting with the world that we need to have in lots of different sectors. It, it does feel a little, I don't know, you do feel a little powerless against that, given you know, the, what we've seen with the arms race and, um, and, and sort of protesting against um, the build-up of autonomous weapons. I, I, I don't know, it just seems a bit hard to see that you'd have some impact, but you're, you're a little bit more optimistic than me. I'm a little bit more optimistic, I and mean, I think that's a tough one, because it's like a lot of difficult problems in the world. When it requires a whole lot of countries to agree, it's much more difficult than when it's something you can do you know, in one country where your vote can go a long way. Um, but I, I think that you know, there are campaigns, and there have been agreements on lots of things like this in the past, which many, many countries have signed up to about not using particular kinds of weapons. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that we get there. I just think that you know, for autonomous weapons, as for technology and work, um, we need to sort of think now. And while I'm optimistic that, look, we've got some time to do it, if we just blow the next 15 years thinking we're fine, we could wake up in a pretty nasty place in a whole lot of these situations. Mm. So that, I think, is, is what we need to avoid. Uh, I'm curious to know um, how you wrote this book. Did you, um, what, what do you do? What, uh, you, know, <laughs> you, you look like you're about 12 years old. Everybody seems 12 years old to me these days. Um, and they, they go on and do amazing things like work at, um, in Washington, D.C. But can you tell us about your journey from Nelson to Washington? Yeah, sure. Well, sort of fortuitous, probably in, in large part. Um, I, I got a scholarship, as you mentioned, out to Cambridge University for my undergraduate. And I, I should say, I really only got that, um, well, not only, but I got that or applied to that scholarship because I was standing at a buffet in Wellington waiting for a vegetarian meal. And the chap who was standing next to me uh, turned out to be applying overseas to university, which up until that point had never occurred to me. And so thanks really to being vegetarian, I, um, I then thought, well, that sounds quite good. You know, I should, I should try this. And it was a lot of work then, but I, would, I think I really would have thought about it. And I guess having got to that point, it sort of 
brought open, you know, opened a lot of other doors. And so I, I worked uh, in as a strategy consultant for a time, trying to work mostly on economic development and interested already then at what was happening with technology and how that was changing how countries were developing. Um, and really, I sort of followed that thread through for a long time. Uh -huh. I'm trying to think, okay, how do, how do we get wealthier? How do we you know, do so without ruining the environment? And then, is this all about to change with, with technology? Um, and so I, I eventually got put in touch with Tom Rennie at BWB Books, um, who was terribly enthusiastic, uh, frankly, much to my surprise. Yeah. And so, um, again, sort of more fortuitous coffees and things later, and um, uh, they were keen to have me write something. So that was all well and good, but yeah, writing it was quite tough mm. um, alongside my regular job. So I was written mostly on um, weekends, um, a lot of uh, evenings, um, uh, yeah, retrospectively it, it looks a little, it seemed a bit of a crazy thing to have undertaken, but of course the good thing was I didn't realise that in advance. So yeah, I just, yeah, otherwise I just you'd never have a baby, would you? Right, yeah. exactly, yeah. yes. Um, and, and what do you do in Washington DC? Are you allowed to say, is I it am, all uh, top secret? No, it's not, I'm not working for a CIA or anything like that. Um, I work for the World Bank. Killer um, robots. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. They're listening now. Yeah. Um, no, I work for the World Bank as an economist. Um, the, the disclaimer I have to give is that you know, the book is entirely my personal views, written in my personal time, and um, so it doesn't reflect what they think. But yeah, I work on broadly on issues of economic development. Do they know that, you've, uh, that you're here? They do know yes. I'm here. They, yeah, know, good. they know that good. I've written a book. They, yeah. Yeah, no. yeah, excellent. Um, look, we've got um, only um, three minutes left before we throw it open to, um, to our guests, but I, I'm Curious also about, uh, you mentioned throughout the book and, and again in your presentation, um, your care for the environment and the concern that um, I think particularly uh, your, um, your uh, can I call you a millennial? I think you can, I, I yeah. Think, yeah. yeah. Um, Guilty. Are, are super aware that um, this continual growth is happening at the expense of the environment. And you have some heritage in this, I thought. Maybe we allowed to talk about your well, parents sure, at all? Sure, um, yeah. So your, your parents uh, have been, well, you tell us. Yeah, sure. So my parents, my mother who's here, Gwynnie Davis, and my father, Guy, were involved heavily in the campaign to save New Zealand's forests um, some time ago and, and have still stayed involved in various ways. And yeah, so the environment, I guess, the concerns about the environment are definitely something I've grown up with. And I was sort of struck studying economics and then thinking about the future of work that it's, we don't really connect the two. And so mm. it's like, oh, we're all going to be way more productive and we can, robots are going to be pumping out widgets everywhere. And, uh, but when we've done that in the past, we end up with, you know, more climate emissions, more damage mm. to the environment. And so I am quite concerned that if we don't think about how we do that, we could maybe have a full employment future, but it might be one with a lot of environmental damage. And so we really have to meet the two challenges together. And of, mm. of all the challenges I lay out in the book that I think we need to overcome if we're going to head for a world which still you know, has that full employment, which is the, the sort of version of the future I would like to see, the toughest challenge is the climate challenge. Because the other ones we've done some version of before. We've adjusted our education systems, you know, we've mm -hmm. shaped what we do in technology, but we haven't actually in New Zealand really successfully, strongly decoupled carbon emissions from growth. Um, so that I think is the big challenge. And I, you know, the starting place as I mentioned is I think we need to get serious about pricing carbon properly and, and really 
use that as a stimulus for us to do things differently. That might, uh, in its own way, stimulate that kind of third level of market-changing innovation, right? If we, if, we, if we really set our sights on that, we could be generating IP from New Zealand that's highly relevant, right? And, and to think about agricultural emissions. Absolutely. I mean, that's, I think that's a big opportunity for New Zealand. I mean, we, uh, we are already advanced in a lot of agricultural technology and this trying to figure out, okay, how, do we be a, how are we able to produce without damaging the environment is something that lots and lots of other countries are going to want to learn from us. Um, but we haven't really put the incentive, in some sense, on ourselves to actually tackle that challenge strongly enough. Yeah. And if we had that more strongly, we might spend a bit more time trying to think about how to reduce carbon emissions from sectors like agriculture, and less time trying to think about how to eliminate workers uh, where perhaps they could carry on productively working in any case. And where you might get a, a really, a, 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 a kind of a level of gain that is um, quite different from these sort of incremental changes that you're talking exactly. about. Exactly, and I think that some of those technologies can also create jobs in the process. Yeah. So I think there's lots of reasons to be optimistic, but we haven't quite got this sort of policy frame right to actually make it worthwhile for an investor to go out and say, I want to do that. I just, mm. to finish, I read a piece in the Financial Times recently that said in the US that if you were looking at funding a drug that had um, only proven to have a placebo effect, and you were comparing that to some relatively successful carbon capture technology, because of the way the regulations are in the US that you have to fund drugs if they show some small impact, it would make more sense to pile your money into funding a drug that doesn't actually do anything than it would to fund a carbon technology that actually helped. And that's just a function of regulatory environment. And New Zealand's not as bad, but those, those skewed incentives really can mm -hmm. um, send us off in funny directions that I don't think are helpful. Yeah, great. How interesting. Thank you. Please, um, warm round of applause. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.